This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello and welcome once more to the program, where we're following the topics on the path to enlightenment as taught to the Tibetans by the great Indian Buddhist master, Atisha. This might not make sense to you if you weren't with us at the beginning of this series of programs, so let me go over the story again briefly. Towards the end of the 10th century of the Common Era, Buddhism in Tibet had undergone a bit of an upheaval. The anti-Buddhist King Langdama had attacked the Buddha's teachings and tried to eradicate them from Tibet. Ultimately he was not successful, but by the time the next king, Yeshi Er, came along, Buddhism had de- degenerated and people had many strange beliefs about the Dharma. Yeshi Er was a devout Buddhist and saddened by the state of the Dharma in Tibet, wanted some powerful teacher to come and set things straight. He heard that Atisha was the greatest master in India, so sent an invitation to him to come to Tibet. At that time, Atisha was a highly regarded official and teacher at Nalanda, the biggest monastery in India, and at first he refused the invitation as he didn't think the monastery would let him leave. Eventually, however, the monastery abbot was persuaded to let him go, and so he travelled to Tibet, where he started teaching and throwing out the wrong views that had accumulated. However, the people asked him if he could give them a manual for practice that was suitable for those with little intelligence and not much time to spend in meditation. So Atisha wrote a text called The Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment. Now he had promised the abbot of Nalanda that he would only be away for three years, but when the time was up, the work in Tibet still hadn't been finished and the people wanted him to stay. He said he had to go because he had made a promise but on the way back to, to, to India, his way was blocked by a neighbouring war, so he couldn't complete the trip. He sent word to Nalanda about not being able to return and also sent the monastery a copy of the text. When the high masters at the monastery read the text, they were so impressed that they said Atisha could stay in Tibet if he wished, as his teachings had already arrived back in India. So the great master remained in Tibet and continued his work until he died in 1052, eventually purifying the degenerated Dharma. That text of his, though, The Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment, has become the basis for practice, especially in the Gelukput school of Tibetan Buddhism. It breaks the path into a number of topics to meditate on in a progressive manner, from the more simple and easily understood to the most complex. Many commentaries have been written on it, but probably the most comprehensive was by the founder of the Gelukpa school, J. Tsongkhapa. He came along in the 14th century, when once again the teachings had somewhat degenerated. Tsongkhapa used the lamp on the path to enlightenment to write extensive commentaries on the Buddhist teachings, always referring back to the Sanskrit renditions in India to restore the purity of what the Buddha had taught. He wrote an ominously large tome, called The Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path to Enlightenment, a long name in English that content condenses down to the Lam Rim in Tibetan. This is the text that our radio programs have been based on, 
and I hope that if you've been following this series, you have found the programs of some benefit. We are in fact coming to the end of the path, having gone through all the topics except meditative concentration and the view of emptiness or lack of inherent independent existence of all things. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at meditative concentration and particularly calm abiding, the state of being able to keep your mind on an object without drowsiness, excitement, distraction or distress for as long as you like, even years on end. Calm abiding leads to supernatural powers like clairvoyance and flying, but its main use in Buddhism is to meditate on the nature of reality, to finally free ourselves from suffering. Everything else is by-product and isn't very highly regarded amongst Buddhist practitioners. Oh yes, I can read other ma- others' minds, they might say, but I'm not free of life's unending miseries, so seeing what others are thinking is not that important. In the last couple of weeks, we meditated on a few of the objects that can be used to develop this ability, such as a figure of the Buddha, or a disc, or even consciousness itself. Many things are suitable to be used as an object to develop calm abiding, but the eventual object we concentrate on will not be a physical thing, but a mentally generated image. In the beginning, we can use a picture, statue, or some other device to help us settle into the practice and develop mental familiarity. But later we have to give up all such things and just concentrate on the clear, vivid image that appears to our mind. You may also remember that the two worst opponents of calm abiding are dullness and excitement. The first being a state where the image is not seen either clearly or vividly and the second being where the mind wanders off to an object of attachment. We're not going through those again, but just for the sake of newcomers to the program and for the fading memories of us oldies, I thought it would be a good to mention them again. If you want to know more about the faults and their remedies, you'll find many books written on the subject, especially Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise on the path to enlightenment, which you can order from Amazon or borrow from the library of most Galukpa meditation centers. In English, it comes in three volumes, though, so you may need to take your time and borrow them one at a time. Today we're going on to consider the stages that you go through developing calm abiding. But before we do that, let's consider our motivation and just get into the mood with a placement meditation. First, setting our motivation. Just take a minute to think why you are participating in the program today, and if the motivation is small or negligible, elevate it so that it's something greatly beneficial, like gaining enlightenment, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of all others as well. Because the object is then vast, the benefit will be vast, and so even a short time listening to the program will have a very big result. So let's just take a moment to look at our motivation. Thank you. Now, meditation simulating calm abiding. This time, let's take a Buddha image as our object and concentrate on that. But before starting, Put your mind on your breath and try to keep it there, letting the thoughts come and go without becoming involved in them or trying to stop them. Just let everything float on by like clouds in the sky, even sounds and other physical disturbances. Just label them and go back to your breath. So hearing a sound, you might say, hearing, hearing. Feeling an itch, just say, feeling, feeling. And being caught by a thought, 
Say to yourself, towards the end of the 10th century of the Common Era, Buddhism in Tibet had undergone a bit of an upheaval. The anti-Buddhist King Langdama had attacked the Buddha's teachings and tried to eradicate them from Tibet. Ultimately, he was not successful. But by the time the next king, Yeshi Er, came along, Buddhism had degenerated and people had many strange beliefs about the Dharma. Yeshi Er was a devout Buddhist and saddened by the state of the Dharma in Tibet, wanted some powerful teacher to come and set things straight. He heard that Atisha was the greatest master in India, so sent an invitation to him to come to Tibet. At that time, Atisha was a highly regarded official and teacher at Nalanda, the biggest monastery in India, and at first he refused the invitation as he didn't think the monastery would let him leave. Eventually, however, the monastery abbot was persuaded to let him go, and so he traveled to Tibet, where he started teaching and throwing out the wrong views that had accumulated. However, the people asked him if he could give them a manual for practice that was suitable for those with little intelligence and not much time to spend in meditation. So Atisha wrote a text called The Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment. Now he had promised the abbot of Nalanda that he would only be away for three years, but when the time was up, the work in Tibet still hadn't been finished and the people wanted him to stay. He said he had to go because he had made a promise. But on the way back to, to India, his way was blocked by a neighboring war, so he couldn't complete the trip. He sent word to Nalanda about not being able to return and also sent the monastery a copy of the text. When the high masters at the monastery read the text, they were so impressed that they said Atisha could stay in Tibet if he wished, as his teachings had already arrived back in India. So the great master remained in Tibet and continued his work until he died in 1052, eventually purifying the degenerated Dharma. That text of his, though, The Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment, has become the basis for practice, especially in the Gelukput school of Tibetan Buddhism. It breaks the path into a number of topics to meditate on in a progressive manner, from the more simple and easily understood to the most complex. Many commentaries have been written on it, but probably the most comprehensive was by the founder of the Gelukpa school, Jaitsong Kapa. He came along in the 14th century, when once again the teachings had somewhat degenerated. Tsongkhapa used the lamp on the path to enlightenment to write extensive commentaries on the Buddhist teachings, always referring back to the Sanskrit renditions in India to restore the purity of what the Buddha had taught. He wrote an ominously large tome called The Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path to Enlightenment, a long name in English that content condenses down to the Lam Rim in Tibetan. This is the text that our radio programs have been now imagine in front of you. I hope that if you've been the following the series, size that you have found your programs mind. of some benefit. Smaller is better. We are in fact coming to some the text that say the size of your having thumb. gone through all the topics except in any case not bigger than life size and the view of emptiness. Imagine or lack it as of vividly as you can. Existence of all things. But if you can't see it clearly, don't worry. Last few weeks, think that we've looked there. at meditative concentration it's made of light and particularly very abiding. And look, the state great of being loving to keep your mind on you an object without drowsiness, excitement, just try to keep your distress, mind on the image for as long as you like. Letting all thoughts and even so years on pass on by 
without I'm interacting with them. Leads to supernatural powers. If you do get distracted. And gently bring your mind but back its main onto the image. Buddhism is to concentrate on the nature of reality. To finally free ourselves from Keep suffering. Watch out, especially everything for the mind running off to things you're attached to. And isn't very highly the regarded amongst dull, Buddhist practitioners. Losing some of its vividness. Oh yes, I can read other mi- others' minds. They might say, but I'm not free of life's unending miseries. So seeing what others are thinking is not that important. In the last couple of weeks, we meditated on a few of the objects that can be used to develop this ability, such as a figure of the Buddha, or a disc, or even consciousness itself. Many things are suitable to be used as an object to develop calm abiding, but the eventual object we concentrate on will not be a physical thing, but a mentally generated image. In the beginning, we can use a picture, statue, or some other device to help us settle into the practice and develop mental familiarity. But later we have to give up all such things and just concentrate on the clear, vivid image that appears to our mind. You may also remember that the two worst opponents of calm abiding are dullness and excitement. The first being a state where the image is not seen either clearly or vividly and the second being where the mind wanders off to an object of attachment. We're not going through those again, but just for the sake of newcomers to the program and for the fading memories of us oldies, I thought it would be a good to mention them again.
So now come out of meditation. It takes a lot of work to develop calm abiding, so don't be distraught if your practice doesn't seem to achieve much. Each person's mind is different, so it's pointless comparing. We each have to proceed at our own pace. The important thing is to keep practicing regularly, and slowly we will become more adept at it, and eventually we'll be able to do a long retreat. So slowly, slowly, as my teacher used to say. Now I'm no, nowhere near getting calm abiding, so I cannot talk from experience, but Maitreya in his text called Ornament for the Mayana Sutras describes nine stages we go through in developing this very concentrated mind. He wrote, Having concentrated the mind on the object, do not allow its continuum to be distracted. By quickly realizing the distraction, return again to the object. The intelligent more and more withdraw the mind inside. Then due to seeing the good qualities, tame the mind in meditative stabilization. By seeing the faults of distraction, pacify the dislike of concentration. Covetousness, discomfort and the like should be pacified immediately upon rising. Then the diligent ones, with application to the mind, attain spontaneity and through familiarity with that, stop application. The first line, having concentrated the mind on the object, refers to the first of the nine stages, which is called placing the mind. This is when we set out in the beginning, after hearing teachings and settling on an object of concentration. We focus on it and withdraw our attention from the distractions caused by the objects of the five senses. That is, we withdraw from listening to pleasant sounds or lusting after del delicious tastes and so on. At first, the mind will only stay for a very short time on the object of meditation and it seems to be constantly distracted. The first time we notice this, it might appear that our mind is becoming more uncontrolled and distracted, but that's only because we are noticing what is going on for the first time. We continue to practice keeping the mind on the object until we can keep it there consistently for about a minute. That will indicate we've achieved the first stage. Maitreya's line, do not allow its continuum to be distracted, marks the second stage. This means continuing to practice so that the length of time the mind stays on the object increases. Sometimes the mind stays on the object, sometimes it's distracted, although it experiences more distractions than free times. When we can hold the object consistently on our mind without interruptions for two to five minutes, we can pat ourselves on the back for achieving the second stage. But we don't have any cause for celebration as there's still seven more stages to go. This second stage is known as placement with continuity. By quickly realizing the distraction, return again to the object, indicates the third stage in Maitreya's text. This is called patch-like placement because it's like a piece of cloth that is torn but not so much that it needs to be thrown away. It can be patched. Whenever we are distracted now, we can quickly bring the mind back to the object and concentrate again. We don't need to use any analysis to recognize whether the mind has run off or not, but notice almost automatically. Metaphorically, we immediately patch up any lapse of concentration though, and so it's at this stage the lapses are much shorter than in the previous stage. The fourth stage is called close placement, 
and it is indicated by the lines, the intelligent more and more withdraw the mind inside. In this stage, mindfulness has now been fully developed, so that when we put our mind on the object with effort, it stays there. We still have to be careful about gross laxity and excitement though, because they still have the power to plague our meditation. Remember, gross laxity is when the object we are meditating on is stable, but not clear. This is different from sleepiness, where the mind gets so dull that the image is lost completely. Gross excitement happens when our concentration is interrupted by the mind going off with an object of excitement. For instance, we may be meditating on a Buddha image, but then the mind trots off with an image of our partner or friend. So in this fourth stage, we still have to be ready with mindfulness and alertness to counteract such disturbances. On to the fifth stage, which Maitreya describes with the lines, Then, due to seeing the good qualities, tame the mind in meditative stabilization. This stage is called controlling, and that refers to controlling and overcoming laxity and excitement, especially subtle laxity. In the previous stage, the mind becomes drawn so far inwards that the danger of subtle laxity arises quite strongly. So in this stage, we have to be very mindful and apply the antidote as soon as we notice this subtle laxity. It takes a lot of effort, and you might remember when we talked about subtle laxity in a previous program, we said that some people don't realize that their concentration has been undermined by it. The mind now hardly wanders and is very still and concentrated, so meditators might think they're actually close to enlightenment. However, they don't realize that the vividness of the object has been lost. It is still clear, but not intense, and so they are making their mind familiar with a kind of subtle dullness, and that is quite a way off the path to enlightenment and leading in the opposite direction. In this stage, however, we don't need to worry about gross dullness or excitement, as by now they have been completely overcome. By seeing the faults of distraction, pacify the dislike of concentration, is how Maitreya describes the sixth stage. This is called pacifying, because in our efforts to eliminate subtle laxity in the previous stage, we have invigorated the mind so that it now is more prone to subtle excitement. Remember, in subtle excitement, the mind focuses on the object, which stays clear, but there's an undercurrent that takes the edge of the mind to the objects of attachment. The texts describe it like water flowing under ice. So we have to now be extra vigilant against that and apply the antidotes as soon as it arises. However, we can thankfully not worry about subtle laxity because it will no longer arise and evil's even subtle excitement becomes less of a problem. By the seventh stage, which Maitreya describes with covetousness, discomfort and the like should be pacified immediately upon rising, it becomes difficult for laxity and excitement to arise. But if they do, our mindfulness and awareness is so strong that we can immediately put effort into stopping them. Whereas in the sixth stage, we had to be very aware all the time for laxity and excitement, by this stage we can be more relaxed because our mindfulness and awareness being so strong, we're much more in control. Up to this stage, which is called complete pacification, 
We still have to be aware of laxity and excitement, though. By the eighth stage, single-pointed concentration, we are able to keep the mind concentrated on the object without laxity or excitement arising anymore. At the start of a meditation, we might have to apply a little mindfulness and awareness to make sure laxity and excitement are not lurking around, but after that, we have no trouble in focusing on the object for as long as we like. This stage Maitreya describes with the lines, the diligent ones with application to the mind, and then the third stage with the rest of the verse, attain spontaneity and through familiarity with that, stop application. By this ninth stage, called placement with equanimity, we can concentrate on the object for any length of time without any effort or interruption. We've practiced so well in the previous stage that our meditation is now spontaneous and effortless. That effortlessness is the mark of difference between the eighth and the ninth stages. So those are the nine stages leading up to calm abiding, which comes sometime later. Now let's do a short meditation again as we have a few minutes left. So sit comfortably and generate the Buddha image again and concentrate on it, watching out for laxity and excitement. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.